Great to be together this morning. Great to be in God's Word. You can find your way to Job chapter 1. We're going to be there in a minute. Uh, Today I get the privilege of opening the book of Job, and then in a few weeks I'll be coming back and closing the book of Job. And in between time, we got Pastor Danny Strange back. He's going to be up preaching next week. And then we've got Pastor Charles and Pastor Buzz, and they're going to be sharing some ministry during the series of Job. So we're looking forward to that. And I know I speak for all of our staff uh, when I say that it's such a privilege to preach and teach God's Word. Um, You know, you you have to know that there's... uh, (laughs) You know, preaching is sort of a, a, a beautiful, terrifying experience uh, because God has to work first through the heart of the preacher, right? You've got you've to sit before the Lord and hear His voice and, and, and believe that what you're saying is His words. And it's so humbling to do that because we know who we are. We're sinners. We are people that need, just like all of us, need the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ We are all under this book, the Word of God. This is our authority. And so it's such a privilege to teach and preach and share God's Word. And I know you pray for any who are up here. It's not the preacher. It's the message that God has given to us through His Word. And what a privilege to be a part of it. Just wanted to share that with you this morning. And I just loved Pastor Shadonka last week. What a beautiful time that was. And uh, if you haven't listened to the message, I hope you'll go to the website and do that. Ah, okay, so here we are in Job. Are you ready, Job? Hmm. How many are looking forward to a Job experience during this series? Really? Okay. I don't know if you really knew what I meant when I said that. This is the third section in this little series we've called The Good Life, and as you saw in the video, there's three perspectives of wisdom, and you know, Job is going to round it out for us because Job is an amazing book. And I I teasingly say this to people, you know, I stayed away from this book as a high schooler because I thought it said job, not Job. (laughs) And I didn't want to get a job, so I thought, that's a book I'm staying away from. But it's, it's about a man named Job. It's about suffering. It's about life when life doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. And some of us have that experience today. Some of us are going through really, really hard things today. And today we kind of open this portion of God's Word with a view of behind the scenes of suffering. We're going to look today at what is going on behind the scenes of suffering. And Job's book is going to teach us a lot about suffering, but in the end it's going to show us that no matter what you're going through, God can still be trusted. Even when you're sitting in dust and ashes, God can be trusted because He is good and gracious. He is a sovereign God that is good and gracious, and we can trust Him even when life looks like it's completely come to a a screeching halt for us. And so that's what what this book is about. It's about understanding the the character of God in the midst of the deepest of all suffering, and we're going to see that here in the book of Job. So if you're there in Job chapter 1, let's... uh, Read the first chapter and the first 10 verses of chapter 2, and we're going to just jump in. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. 
His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him, no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was speaking... Another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert, struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. We'll stop right there. Wow. That's a crazy experience, wouldn't you say? 
I mean, that's, that's wild stuff. When your life seems to be going just in a certain direction, everything seems great, and then boom, 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 you just get hammered, hammered, hammered. All these things start coming against you, things that seem to make no sense whatsoever, and they come with a ferocity. Job seems to have absolutely no control, and he doesn't. All this stuff is happening around him, and it's happening with a purpose, and he doesn't have any idea what it is. He's in the dark, and he is suffering. And that's where some of us feel like we are today. We're in the dark, and we're suffering. We don't know why. We don't seem to understand why something that seemed to be going so well is not going so well. Our hearts are rent. We're asking God what's going on. God seems silent. We can't seem to get his attention. We come, we maybe even go through motions in a worship service like this, but deep down inside, our hearts are broken. We don't understand what's going on in our lives. And I thought this morning it would be timely to start this series by looking at what's behind the scenes of suffering. If you've ever found yourself in a place where it just seems like you have no clue and it just keeps getting worse, this might be just for you today. So if you're taking notes, I want to show you four things that I think this passage shows us. Some observations, they're simple. You'll see them. They'll be something you can grasp and hold on to. And more importantly than seeing what's behind the scenes, why they're important for us, okay? So if you're taking notes, I want you to see that the first thing that I observe here is that there is no one immune to suffering. It comes even to people who live God-honoring lives. I mean, this is where you have to start with suffering because in the book of Job, what you first see is that here's a man who is righteous. Here's a guy who's doing everything the way God wants him to do it. Notice it says in verse 1, he's blameless and upright, he fears God, and he shuns evil. The word blameless there, it means mature, having integrity. This was a guy that was mature. He had integrity. And then the word upright, it comes from the word which means aligned or morally straight with God's instructions. I mean, Job being blameless and upright doesn't mean that Job was sinless. In fact, in chapter 13, verse 26 and chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, Job talks about his sinfulness. He's reminded about the sins of his youth. He talks about this with his friends. The Bible is not portraying Job as a man who is sinless. It just portrays a man who is upright, who has integrity, who is seeking to do the will of God in his life, who's morally aligned with God's revealed will. That's who Job was. The word wisdom... Chokmah, this word that we have kind of been tracing through the book of Proverbs, pronounced in Proverbs all throughout the book, and then in Ecclesiastes also, but not here found in the book of Job. While it describes a man of wisdom, the word chokmah is not actually used here. However, in chapter 28, 28, you can turn over if you want to see it real quickly, but in 28, 28, Job says when he's discussing with his friends, he says, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. So once again, we see this thread from Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job that really the, the place where wisdom begins is in the fear of the Lord. And when you fear the Lord, when you have a, a healthy respect for the God of this creation, 
and the God who has made you and the God who has a plan for your life, when you live that way, when that is the desire of your heart, the Bible says that that truly is wisdom. However, even living that way doesn't guarantee that you're going to get through life without problems. And that's what this book is telling us. You can be a righteous person, a person who's morally aligned with God, doing the right things, and your life can suddenly really take a turn. A little more background about the life of Job. Notice he lived in a place called Uz. Don't you like that? That's not Oz, okay? Uz. And I was always thinking, boy, if Pastor Buzz could have come from this place, that would have been awesome. It says in verse... Uh, chapter 1, verse 3, that he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. By greatest, the writer's probably referring to the wealthiest, most influential, perhaps morally upright person there was in the area. And in fact, Job may have been living out what during the patriarchal period uh, many of the patriarchs did, sacrificing for their children, not sacrificing their children, but bringing an offering to God, a kind of a priestly role in the family. And if we study the book of Genesis, we find in chapter 36, there's a reference to a person named Jobab there in chapter 36, verse 33, and it's likely, it's possible that this was actually referring to Job, a king in the land of Eden, uh, or Edom rather, which is geographically the same location as what we find in the book of Job. It's speculative, we don't know for sure, but Job was, I guess what I'm trying to say is Job was a heavy hitter. Job was a guy that lived during the time of Abraham, during the time of the patriarchs. This would have been about 1700 BC. He was morally upright. He was blameless. He had a life focused on the fear of the Lord. And yet, look at what happens in his life. This day comes to Job. A succession of terrible events, which makes Judith Vorse classic children's book, Alexander and his terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, (laughs) seem like a walk in the park. (laughs) I mean, this is, if there was ever a bad day, this, this was a bad day. Can you imagine these people coming time after time? And maybe you felt like you've had a succession of terrible events too. As a young man in our church, he's in his 30s, got a family, a couple little kids, And this summer, uh, before they were about to go on vacation, they discovered that he had some cancer deep down in his shoulder area. And it kind of threw him back because he's healthy, he's strong, he's fit, he's doing things. And all of a sudden, they discover, kind of out of the blue, they discover this this little thing there. And so he goes to the doctor and they figure out, okay, it's cancer and we're going to have to do surgery. And wow, it turns out to be a pretty invasive surgery and, and they, you know, they, they kind of go in there and they work at it and then they have to test it to see if they got everything in the area and it just a, a really kind of a, a eye-opening experience for him. And so I've been kind of tracking with him and just praying with him and, hey, how you doing? And, and he's texting me back, well, you know, I, I texted him this last week and he said, well, you know, I'm just back to work now, I'm starting to recover and then yesterday I get rear-ended on the freeway, you know. And so I text him back and said, hey, well, we're starting Job this week. It'll be great to have you. You know, it, it kind of feels sometimes. And, and he, of course, right back said, you know, hey, I am way far from a Job experience. You know, and, and he knows that. And we are too. I mean, I think, you know, comparatively speaking, I don't think any of us know what a Job experience is really like. But sometimes it feels like 
just things get worse and worse and worse. And just, just when you, about you've reached kind of a new normal of, okay, I've got this, and just another, you know, another shoe drops. Have you ever felt that? It just keeps coming. It just keeps coming. It keeps coming. It's like this relentless thing. I guess all this to say that, you know, we forget sometimes that suffering is a part of this life. It's a part of every person's life. And even, yes, for believers, strong believers, people who are solid in the Lord, no one is immune from suffering. Life is full of pain. And we shouldn't be surprised when it's our turn. In fact, let's look at a couple of scriptures. We'll put them on the screen. Let's read these out loud together. Acts 14.22 says, ready, here we go. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Amen? Yeah, that was dead. <laughs> amen? Yeah, amen. Yeah, yeah that's just, we don't get excited about that. But yet Paul on his missionary journeys, going back to the churches saying, let's remember everybody, through many hardships we must enter the kingdom of heaven. We just don't hear that very much today. That's why James says, and let's read that one out loud. Ready? Here we go. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy. <laughs> I, I don't know. Let's, let's just be real today. I, how many of us just go, oh, what a great day. We suffered so much today. <laughs> we don't do that. That's just not the way we are. And of course, it's not talking about being happy. It's talking about being joyful. It's talking about an inner contentment, something that is so deep, something that is so beyond rationality even. You know, you don't have to be rational to be joyful. To be plugged into the Lord and plugged into His Word doesn't necessarily make you always rational. It seems very irrational to find joy in the midst of our suffering. But trials and suffering are part of every believer's life, every person's life. You know, you're going to go through this life and you're going to experience problems and trials and thank God when you know Him, when you know the Lord, you have a resource. You have a, a power that is within you that those that are without Christ do not have. And so if, you're gonna, if everyone's going to go through suffering, aren't you glad that you're going to go through it with the power of God in your life? Like I was talking to someone this past week who's been through just a horrendous experience. Oh my goodness, if I told you their story. And they said, we, we just have no idea how people without the Lord would go through something like this. Because they are hurting. They are broken. You know, there's, there's, this, uh, there's this piece of Christianity out there that, that teaches that suffering is always outside the will of God. There's a branch of Christianity that teaches that. If you're suffering, ah! You're outside the will of God. If you were in the will of God, you wouldn't be suffering. And I just, you know, your pastor's telling you that that is a bunch of baloney. <laughs> because it's, first of all, it's not even, you can't even find it in Scripture. In fact, when you look at Job's life, when you see him in chapter 1, verse 21 say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, may the name of the Lord be praised. How can you come up with a theology that says, when the Lord takes away, that's out of the will of God. When Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Uh, and in chapter 2, verse 10, where he says to his wife, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Have you ever noticed we're so good at accepting good from God? <laughs> oh God, you bless me. Thank you. This is so great. And then things are really rough and we say, God, where are you? <laughs> you know? 
And Job says, look, if you're going to accept one, you've got to accept the other. They come in pairs. They come together. And that's something that we have to remember. Something else I want to point out quickly, and that is that when, even though no one is immune to uh, suffering, there's also nothing ungodly about experiencing deep and horrific lament. You know, Job, when he experiences this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, he rips his clothes, he drops to his knees, and he worships God. But he is in deep grief. This is the kind of lament that happens when a violent expression of grief has overcome us, where suffering is just too uh, powerful against our lives. It's the cry of a heart when someone you love is gone. When a parent loses a child, some sudden violent loss of a loved one, something unexpected. My life as a chaplain has, have, has many times experienced a person experiencing that kind of lament, and it's horrific. And I guess I just wanted to point out that to be a godly person doesn't mean that you sort of suck it up and put a smile on your face, and I guess God's in control, and everything's great, I'm okay. No, sometimes life is terrible. There's something very sacred about lament. God shows us this. So we read through the Psalms. We find beautiful Psalms of lament, horrible loss, a sense of absolute abject uh, pain and even uh, defeat at times. And God seems to welcome and love the fact and permit us as his followers to come before him with lament. So, the first thing I wanted to show you is that no one is immune from suffering. This is an observation we get from the book of Job. And so, when we look into the behind the scenes, the first place, and the reason why that's so important is that there's some of us here today who are going through sort of that time after time issue, and you're starting to think, you know, I, I, you know, I, I must not be what God wants me to be, or, or, or God's punishing me for sins of my past. You ever feel that dialogue? Let me tell you where that's coming from. That's coming from the enemy, the Satan, the one who accuses against us, the one who opposes the things of God. And the reason why it's important to know that even the righteous suffer, that no one is immune to suffering, is because there are times where we feel that somehow our suffering is a payback from God from all the bad things that we've done in our past or some slip that we made, or some, something that didn't go right, or that God's just punitive, and He's just right now just on us. This is the, the, the attack of Satan in our lives. We'll get to that more in a minute. The second thing I want to observe in this passage is not only is that righteous people are not immune from suffering, but number two, we have an adversary who looks for ways to discredit, and if possible, destroy our faith through suffering. We have an adversary uh, you notice on two separate occasions the angels, some of our translations say the sons of God, assemble in some kind of reporting duty and from among them outsteps this one called Satan, literally in the Hebrew language, Hasatan. It's the, the Satan. It's, it's the accuser, the opposer of our souls. And here is a, his accusation is against God concerning a man named Job. And I'm going to get back to that in a minute, but let's think about this adversary for just a minute. First of all, this adversary we're talking about is at large. 
He, he's loose. Notice in both places, where have you been? I have been roaming the earth. His tactics include both intimate attack and broad-range warfare. Satan has built a system into our world that systematically tries to break down the believer's faith and trust in the one true God. We are living in a warfare. This is real-time, real issues that every one of us are dealing with. And I just, I point that out because I talk to sometimes believers that I think really don't get that, that we have an adversary and he's at large. What does Peter write? He says, we'll put it on the screen, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered for a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8-10. through 10. What is Peter telling his, his people? He's saying, look, you have an adversary, and he's at large. He's prowling around. He's looking for someone to mess with. And even though he's defeated by Christ, he's still attacking, he's still accusing, it's the same old, same old, which brings us to something else we better understand about this, and that is that we are at war. We are at war. I'm amazed by the many believers I meet that seem to think that this is peacetime. Because Christ has secured our victory, we don't have any more warfare. That's simply not true. The grand theme of the Bible is the dramatic battle between the serpent and the seed of the woman. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. I think we have that on the screen. Do we have that on the screen? Should be. Genesis 3, 15. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the grand picture of the great warfare that has started from the very beginning. And notice in that text that Satan has offspring too. Jesus told a bunch of murderous religious leaders in John chapter 8 that you are of your father, the what? The devil. That's right. Whoa. That didn't win Jesus a lot of popularity votes that day, by the way. He says, you're, you're sons of the devil. Now, I know some people, and I get questions like this, aren't we all children of God? Well, you know, theoretically, in a way, yes, we are creations of God. We are all sons and daughters of God in the sense of creation. But technically, are you listening? Say amen if you're listening. Okay, technically, you're either a son of God by virtue of placing faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, and becoming an heir of Christ, you are either the son, a son of God or you are a son of the devil or a daughter of the devil or a daughter of God. And so the question you should ask is, who's your daddy? <laughs> I mean, really. I mean, sometimes people think, you know, it's, we're all sons of God. Well, theoretically, but not technically. If you haven't placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you're still of the old Adam. You are still of Adam. You are not of the new Adam, not of Christ. And until you, or unless you, place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and declare Him as Lord of your life, you remain in a spiritual state of being under 
the fatherhood of Satan. And he's got you right where he wants you if you think that because life is somewhat comfortable and you've got a little slice of religion and you've got a little moral bent in your life and you've got good friends and you're, you know, you're rolling along and life is okay, he loves it for people to sit in that kind of existence. But when you step across that line of faith, when you trust in Christ, give him your life and begin following him, it's not so much that Satan becomes your enemy. He's just set up a system to try to dismantle your life and dismantle your faith and make you discouraged and make you feel like God has abandoned you. And this is something that, I don't know, I, I read in Scripture. I see this in Romans 16.20. I love how Paul says, we'll put that on the screen, I think. Romans 16.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I love that. That's warfare terminology. Paul's saying, look, hang in there. Soon God will crush Satan under your feet. This is, a, this is a battle that we are engaged in, and you have to stay vigilant. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, we don't have time to go through it all, but for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers, against the principalities of this world system. And therefore, take up the full armor of God, Paul says, with the belt of truth and the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, the shield of faith, and on and on it goes. Because this is war. We are in a wartime mentality. And you know, to be honest, I slide into peacetime mentality a lot. If I'm not careful, it's just like everything's great and, you know, we're just kind of floating along. And it's, we just need to be vigilant. The Bible tells us to raise our sense of what's really going on. And by the way, Satan's objective is really to take shots at God. And we're just, it's not like we're the enemy, God is the enemy, and Satan is still trying to win the battle that he lost when he rebelled against God, as recorded in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 18. He accuses us before God as being hypocrites. The question he insinuates is, are we faithful to God simply because God blesses us and life is kind of easy? Is that why we're faithful to God? It's the same thing he said to God referring to Job. He says, God, Job's a hypocrite. He's working the system. He's happy because look at his life. And you know, if you looked at our lives seriously, we got more reasons to be happy than we have to be sad, most of us. Some of us are in really, really dire straits. I get it. I'm just being honest with you. My life is pretty easy. Comparatively speaking, I have a cushy, cushy life. And when I travel the world and see how other people live and the political issues of their culture and their, where they are, and yeah, it, life is messy here in the United States and we've got our battles too and there's all kinds of issues, but you know, comparatively speaking, it's a cakewalk. And God may change that. God may change that on my life. There may come a day where I have more of a Job experience than I've ever experienced in my life. That's up to a sovereign God. I don't know what God's going to do. I don't know what his ultimate plan is, but I know this, he's good, he's gracious, he's faithful, he's sovereign. Hmm. We see this amazing patience. You know, someone very dear to me asked me recently, hey, 1 John 3, 8 says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And the question was, why didn't he just destroy the devil? Good question. 
That's the, that's the debate of every theologian when it comes to this issue of theodicy, the existence of evil. Why does God allow it? And even more, why does God allow Satan to continue to exist? Because if you read the Bible, he's there all the way, almost, to the end. But then actually there's a, a pause and then there's a new beginning and Satan's not around for that part. There is going to be a day when Satan is no more. But for now, in God's sovereign plan, he's allowed to keep him around. I don't know why. It's a mystery. But it's part of his plan. Which brings us to the third thing. Are you ready for this? Okay. Here we go. Our suffering may be a specific test arranged for and allowed by God for his own purposes. Uh Uh-oh. You know, when you read this text, you need to be clear about something that's going on here. Um, And this hit me strong because I've studied the Bible, but I I kind of drift into the fact that Job is there accusing God of, 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 uh, excuse me, Satan is there accusing God of Job. But actually, who brings up Job? God does. So now just see if this will encourage you for a minute. Um, Think about perhaps some cosmic boardroom where God may be negotiating with Satan right now over something concerning your life. Does that make you feel good? (laughs) I don't know. I get a little nervous about that. Because it isn't like Satan came in and said, hey, what about this guy named Job? Job, God says, have you considered my servant Job? I mean, for some of us, that becomes an argument for maybe, you know, not living so righteously. (laughs) You know, maybe God will leave me alone. No, that's not it. You see this in other places in Scripture. It's amazing. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Isn't that amazing? A a messenger of Satan to torment Paul. What was it? We don't really know what it was. Was it physical? Was it emotional? Was it spiritual? It may have been all three of those things, but whatever it was, which remains a mystery, I've read all the arguments, whatever it was, Paul saw that as a messenger of Satan. He saw that as, as somehow God allowing Satan to torment. So that's why Paul went to God and said, God, would you take this away from me, please? And God says, ah, guess what? My grace is sufficient. It'll be all right. You can trust me. Okay. Take heart with three things that come out of this. Number one, if you're under attack or suffering in your faith, you can be sure that God has superintended the extent of it. Okay, that's helpful. There is some kind of boundary there. Uh, And yet, I know when I say that, some of you are going, but wait, 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 wait. It feels like the boundary isn't there. I mean, my child was sick, I prayed, and she died. Yeah. Pretty hard to say, yeah, God protected that boundary. That's a hard one. It's hard when we pray and we say, God, I'm ready to break. I can't take any much more. And then God allows. There's more. Maybe God knows more about us than we know about ourselves. And maybe God's superintending a bigger plan that we won't even know in this life like Job himself. But take heart in the fact that if you are suffering, God has at least superintended the extent of it. Thank you, Lord. 
In fact, I love what Job says in Job 13, 15. He says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Though he slay me. Can you say that? Can you say that of God? Lord, if you slay me, if you just take me down to my ankles, I'm still going to I'm still going to hope in you. In 1925, Job says, I know my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. That's one of the most hopeful verses in all of Job, in the midst of his torment with his friends. There's hope there. There's something else to take heart too, and that is that if we're under attack or suffering for our faith, we can be sure God will work it out for our good. That's a promise of Scripture. It comes to us in Romans 8, 28, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His plan. What a promise. That is the greatest promise, I think, in all of Scripture, really, because it tells us that no matter what we're going through in life, if we belong to the Lord, then God's going to work it out for good. Amen. That is so good. And God's word is true, we can trust it. Psalm 33, 4, for the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. Psalm 145, 13, the Lord is faithful to all his promises. Listen, if God makes a promise, he will fulfill it. So those two things are very positive. God will plan the extent of it, and we can trust that he's going to work it out for good. But the third thing is, is not so positive, and that is you can be sure if you're suffering in your faith that people will say unhelpful things <laughs> in their attempt to help you get through it. You can be sure of that. Uh, in the micro of that, you see that in chapter 2, verse 9, you know, why did, you wonder, when Job was messing, or when Satan was messing with Job, why did Job, why did Job's wife survive all that? His kids are gone? I think maybe Job or Satan was gonna, had a special little thing for his wife. <laughs> and that was to come to Job and say, why don't you just curse God and die? Now, I, I want to be fair in saying that this may have been a gesture of mercy and compassion. She didn't want to see her husband suffer anymore. But this cursing God thing is kind of the motif through the first few chapters and actually through the whole book of Job. It's all about cursing God. We forget that cursing God sometimes is just the way we live our lifestyle. You know, we don't say things that we should say and so forth. But chapters 4 through 37, you see the macro of that. You see all these people coming through Job's life and saying dumb things, hurtful things, unuseful things, things that Job really didn't benefit by. And if you're going through something that is really difficult, I just want to encourage you to remember that there are going to be people coming alongside in the name of we want to help you, they're going to say some pretty dumb things. And I guess I can know that because I've done it myself. Tried to help people in their suffering and later I just kind of go, oh man, that was really insensitive to say that. And if you've gone through something really hard, you can probably count the things that people have said that really did not help and even actually hurt you. And we're going to be getting into that in the later weeks. These friends that come in and have this conversation with Job, we'll be seeing more of that. Okay, which brings us to the last thing, this last point that I want to share, this observation. No one is immune to suffering. We have an adversary, and God is allowing it for our good. And fourthly, the purpose of our suffering may never be revealed to us. Um, I know that doesn't seem very encouraging to us. 
In fact, skeptics often turn to stories of great suffering where it appears that there's no reason as an excuse for why they can't believe in God, or at least in a loving God. Have you ever heard that argument? Sure, we all have. It seems illogical, and it can't be accepted, that if there's a loving God, that he would allow these things to happen. But it's only illogical, watch this, if we believe or assume that if God exists, he must stamp out all evil immediately upon its presence. But since we don't really know the purpose of evil, we really can't judge God for not stamping it out. So it's not illogical to say that God is love, that He is real and that He's loving and that evil exists. It's just something that we embrace as a tension in our lives. And think about one obvious purpose for Job's suffering was to make him an example for the multitudes who would suffer greatly in their life in this world. I mean, Job never knew that during his suffering there would be millions, if not billions of people who will hear his story and come to the place of realizing that it was an encouragement. I love what James 5 says. It says, brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Do you see that? That the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. In fact, look back at chapter 2, verse 3, where God says of Job, he says, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity. The word still there literally means to take a stronger grip. Job's first bout of dilemma and suffering actually strengthened him for the second bout. And God points that out as a way of sort of saying, in your face, Satan, he's stronger. That's a beautiful thing. I can't pretend to know why God allowed suffering in Job's life, nor can I pretend to know what, why God is allowing a suffering in your life. But I can tell you this, God knows everything about what suffering is about. When he sent his own son into this world and allowed him to suffer for my sin, for your sin, and for him to be completely rejected by everyone, God knows suffering. He experienced it firsthand, and he knows loss when he gave his own son. Which leads us to the most important point of this sermon, and that is today, if, if you're on the other side, if you can't claim that God is your father, that you are his son or daughter today, right now, you can confess that as a sinner you need a savior and you can declare Jesus Christ as your savior today, right now. I want to encourage you to do that. We're going to walk out these doors in a few minutes and we don't know what awaits us. But there's a God that wants to go with us, and in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, he will.